Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. I'm David Huntsberger, and Big Nothingness is available everywhere you can find albums, streaming things, um, a little harder to find. So go to davidhuntsberger.com, and uh, there's links to the Vimeo, as well as the YouTube version. That's Big Nothingness, folks. Uh, My guest today, I'm very excited to uh, have done this chat and to share it. Uh, we've become pretty good buddies over the years. He's married to one of my longtime comedy friends, Amber Preston. You've heard her voice in a sketch or two on this show. Um, and over the years, I, you know, I used to do the junk show prior to this damn pandemic. And it was a collection of um, trying to just get a bunch of artists from different disciplines together. Filmmakers, musicians, storytellers, animators comedians, jugglers, magicians. It was it was really fun. I really enjoyed doing it, and I miss it. And one of the things we did during the show was kind of this, um, I don't know, like a recurring segment that was, you would add on to it. So someone from the audience would come up and share 16 seconds of a story they just made up. It was meant to be just purely an exercise in creativity. And then a stranger would animate that, and then we'd show it at the next show, And someone else would tack on 16 seconds to that story. So in the end, it would be like 24 different people telling and animating a story. And you can find those on YouTube uh, if you just search The Junk Show or The 16 Second Story. Anyway, Peter had a hand in a bunch of those. His animation style got better. I I, want to say better in just that he uh, he's always tackling new things. You will hear us talk about that quite a bit in this chat, uh, just pursuing and getting better and challenging yourself, etc. I think he's really an embodiment of that as an artist. He really pursues it for the sake of creativity. He's extremely talented. He would, on occasion, bring a short or something that he had made. Um, And I will link to the one we mentioned in this episode. It's phenomenal. It'll really move you. I think you'll really love it. And he did... The dragon's bit, which is claymation, stop motion, clay movements for big nothingness. So if you haven't seen it yet, it's visually pretty interesting, if nothing else, and hopefully you like the jokes, but people really respond to the dragon's bit in big nothingness, and that's because of my guest, here's part one, with Peter Jane. getting it figured out there we go oh man that yeah that's impressive now you look like an animated show or movie when they show the famous person you know recording the lines and then the next the frame next to them is is the moving walrus or whatever it is yeah yeah Yeah. but you look very official it it looks robin williams yeah recording the genie 
Do you know that whole story? You and I talked about the uh, Cobbler and the Thief. I think we did in the park one day. I briefly talked about like Aladdin being such a ripoff of that. Um, I think a little bit. Um, and I knew of it because of Richard Williams. Yeah. Um, and when I was in school, they talked about Richard Williams. We watched Richard Williams um, videos, read Richard Williams and um, knew about the story, but it was really hard to find. Mm -hmm. And you could see like the mashed up copy that they, um, I think they released one, maybe you know better, but I had a chance to actually see like a weird working print at my friend's house the other day. And it's kind of hard to watch because it was never really put together, but some of the animation is just. Yeah. Bonkers. I saw a documentary about it and that that's, that's how I would explain how it must've felt from the other side. The documentary does a nice job of paring it down, of showing you just 20 seconds you know, a bunch of frames where, yeah, you're blown away. Like this looks incredible, but everyone, all the animators involved, everyone kind of has the same sentiment of, you know, it just got longer and longer and the story was kind of convoluted and it, it was all over the place. And which is a shame because in that documentary, he, one of the things he says that I liked a lot was, well, I've been doing this so long I, you know, when you do anything long enough, you become a master. And so you make a masterpiece. So I'm making my masterpiece, which what a weird thing to set out and say you're going to make. But if you were a master shoemaker, I guess you would say, oh yeah, here, here is a, everything I make at this point is a masterpiece because it's a piece made by me, a master, but weirdly kind of calling his shot. And then maybe because of that, he was so relentless on there being no mistakes and then they go and make Aladdin with in a fraction of the time. Yeah. It's easy to be, I don't want to say cynical, but like on the justice side of things, you know, kind of going, ah, of course they commercialized it and they slapped it together and sent it out. But Aladdin's pretty great. So it's one of those things that even if a band I stole another. I love Aladdin. Who doesn't? It's fantastic. Yeah. And so it's hard to, it's hard to know which side is right there. Uh, I think there's. Uh, are we recording? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. We, you got, you got <laughs> lulled right into it, buddy. Oh, okay. You never right. know when it starts. <laughs> just... I just think um, that there's a difference between a good artist and a good director. Mm -hmm. And Richard Williams may have been the like. the animation director for Roger Rabbit, but he, ultimately he wasn't the director of Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Um, when he and, did like the Christmas story. So even if, or not Christmas story, Christmas Carol, Scrooge and stuff. And so even if you are the director of that, you know, the story is, t you can't really fudge that story. It is set. It, everyone knows it. So if you wander off and have some sort of fourth act or something, people are going to go, What? just stick to the story that we all know. So I see what you're saying that it was, it was so hard for him to commit to a story, be a storyteller and direct that story. Yeah. Um, 
I was listening to a um, interview with Peter Chung, my friend turned me on to. It's like two hours long. Um, and it, he goes into a lot of stuff like how, you know, there's a lot of people out there that can do one thing, but they can't necessarily do the other thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I might be one of those people. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I look at my, like, I'm, you know, some of the parts of the things that I've made are like, I'm really proud of. And then there's other parts where I'm like, this is bad news, man. This is, uh, <laughs> but you get better. Uh, and are you clicking a mouse a lot? I'm trying to turn off these stupid notifications. Ah, I see. They're starting beeping at me and I'm trying to turn them off. Um, I've, I recently actually, was saying this phrase of, I have a certain set of genetics, which I, you know, is very, um, my friend Eric, who I was talking to about it was like, oh, that's like the movie Taken. So I guess that's, you know, I have a certain set of skills, but I think it's a thing that as humans, we rarely do is to go, all right, well, I'm not going to be a free solo mountain climber. Genetically, it just doesn't appeal to me in the part that you need the most, which is I desperately want to do that. You have people that maybe don't have the body type or the access or whatever it would be. And in their head, they're like, if I could, I'd be on that mountain. Other people, it just doesn't occur to you. And you, you would say, there's no part of me that wants to do that thing. I don't want to race motorcycles with my knee almost touching the ground and zipping around corners. And so genetically, those things are at the far end where you're like, yeah, I know I don't want to do that. But everything else that's kind of in the jumble of it all, you feel like, well, I should be able to do that or I should want to do that or I should have a skill at doing that. And I always feel like we're not very good at sussing that out and going, yeah, I, I just don't do that. I pay someone to do my taxes because I don't like taxes or vice versa. Ooh, get me in some some documents that I can lick my finger and flip through. That's my thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I mean, there's definitely, um, a problem, I think, uh, at least within art and visual stuff I run into where you kind of have to become you have to branch out into things you might not necessarily be great at or good at in order to work. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with this giant grab bag of stuff and people are like, Oh, can you do this and do that? And you're like, sure. Cause you have a dollar. You know? <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, Richard Williams just going back to him was definitely not in that position. You know, he wasn't like being forced to try and come up with his masterpiece. Right. They were doing all these ads and virtually anything they could kind of get their hands on to make money to almost self-finance this thing. Every studio he got a deal with, he would say, is it okay if I work on my own thing? Is it okay if I do this movie? Always trying to secure a bit more funding and things like that. And I think that's cool to do, To to, but it's different than, hey, you have six months. This is what I need you to do. Very clearly detailed and organized this is your job. A lot of t I, I think I've brought this up before on this show that Brian Eno, who was so experimental and kind of, oh, I'll try this, did the original jingle. And I don't think they use it anymore. But when you used to start up a Windows um, 
any computer with windows installed on it, you know, do that. I can't even think of it, but it was like two point something seconds long. And he goes, that was really great for me because they gave me like 50 different notes that I had to hit. It had to sound like this. It couldn't be this. It had to do this, but it could be this, but it had to be, and it has to be 2.3 seconds long. And he was like, that was so nice because it eliminated all of this. Oh, what if I do this? Or what if I try out this? Or to, and it feels like with, Richard Williams, it was so much more, yeah, I guess I could go off in that direction. Yeah, yeah, keep working on that. Draw me a thousand frames of that, and then it just gets crumpled. Yeah. Knowing how hard animation is, that's just, I can't stomach that. Someone would put all that time in, it goes nowhere. I think that's why that story is like one of the biggest stories that gets circulated amongst animators. Mm -hmm. Especially like, it's, it's like, it's, like the greatest animation tragedy that's ever existed. Yeah. Not like you, like, I mean, there's animators that have died um, before their time. And it's like, oh man, like what a waste of talent. There's companies that didn't take off. Like, wouldn't it be cool to see Fleischer like flourishing in the 21st century? Like, what would that look like? (laughs) But like a very like, pointed example of how one of the most painstaking artistic processes in the world can completely crash and burn after putting all your time and effort into it is the story of the thief and the cobbler and and richard williams but it's like he totally brought it on himself like he was unrelenting in his in his conviction to get it done you know yeah and the the thing that's probably the missing that is missing the most from it is a finished product that is undeniably a masterpiece if it were hey they sell it in those bins at truck stops where you can just grab three dvds for 10 bucks go get it and almost anyone you showed it to would likely go yeah it's okay it's not aladdin it's it's cool visually but it's okay and that you have like neutral milk hotel their second album it has this lore it has this basement tapes kind of oh wow the way they recorded it and the the way that he stumbled onto learning about Anne Frank and was so moved he wrote all these songs and the lore behind that kind of matches up with the finished product Lauren Hill does one album there's really as time goes on I think there'll be more lore about that of sort of why not more what she makes this sort of masterpiece and then just disappears but it matches up to whatever lore will come of that yeah and I I just think it's a shame that the thief and the cobbler doesn't it's cool to talk about and it's a sad story but it is not like oh you like Aladdin wait till you see this thing that's 5,000 times better yeah maybe that's its value though yeah maybe its value is as the tragedy and not not the heroic success like it's a really good valuable lesson of uh like you were saying with Brian Eno, like having constraints and and whether they're, it's hard to have self-imposed constraints, but I, in my own art, I try to do that. I'll give myself like a time limit or a tool. Like I won't just be like, okay, I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna use this, 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 and this to make it. Like when I do stop motion, I'm like, it's gonna be, I'm going to use three materials, wire, cardboard, and clay. (laughs) You gave me good advice when I kept editing and editing and editing on Big Nothingness, and you were like, 
oh, a, a professor in art school is like, at some point you just got to put your paintbrush down. And when you first said that to me, I was like, I know that. I'm very well aware of that. I, I'm not doing that. But then I looked and I had this file where I just kept recompositing this After Effects thing. I had like 15 versions of it. And I was like, one of these is going to have to do it. It's You have to put the paintbrush down and kind of step away. Um, and you said that to me even in the in the piece that you made, the Dragons piece, where you're like, yeah, I'm I'm happy with it, but I'm not going to obsess about every little detail. I, I like how it's turned out, and that's going to be that. And I thought, that's great. You have to have – that's a learned skill. I bet, you know, X number of years ago you didn't have that the same way you do now. Oh, no. It, it's – well, basically it was like learned through being forced to do that because I ran out of time. Mm -hmm. And I had to be at peace with the thing that I, I built or made. <laughs> that was wild. Was that you? Yeah, I mean it was the desk. Um, <laughs> that's always good. Uh, it sounded like a cat out in an alley, <laughs> and it, someone from up above dropped some sort of thing on the trash can. Get out of here! <laughs> I wish it was a cat. We don't have a cat in here. They're so good for your soul. Yeah, you sent me a, uh, that email a while ago, like, hey, do you have, and you've made it sound like, do you have that one junk show thing I made? I went looking back through, you'd re you'd recorded several 16-second story things, but you had also animated, you know, of the six seasons, I think, of it we did, you had, you had a part in probably at least four of them, if not five, and they're all different. It, some of them were just kind of, line art 2d others colored others a little more of a 3d field than stop motion i mean it was it, it's really impressive the different mediums to work in i i think uh, thank you um but i really think it's because um i do i look at my time constraints and i'm like what can i do during this amount of time mm -hmm. and i would love to make a magnum opus stop motion piece, but I don't have the time for that or the space for that. What can I can do what within this amount of time? And like that line one with the, with the boxer and the turtle eating pizza. Yeah. Like that was like, at that point, I really only had, I think a laptop to do it on. And I had, and like Adobe, what was flash at the time they made it animate now, but, um, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I guess I'm gonna do it with this. And I, then that's I, a, I just love all the styles too. So anyway. Same. And I think we're at a place now with technology that anyone that's maybe over, I don't know, 25 could have some semblance of or some memory of how challenging it was. And if you're over 30 or 35, you remember that it was like Firewire and DV things and different software that was always changing and how annoying Flash was, but you could keyframe and then you could have these these things that really, when you first heard about them or saw them, like, that's going to expedite things so much. I can have this character this way and keyframe. And there's a term that I'm remembering from Flash, or I'm failing to remember from Flash, that I always would get through and it would kind of render and crash. And I would I hate you, Flash. And then I would to just old fashioned, not only just stop motion with a camera, there was a period where I had a camcorder and I would go start, stop, start, stop, and try to always get the same number of frames, but it was all 
all over the place because of course my thumb wasn't so reliable. Yeah, and it never, it was never, I don't even think you can do single frame like VHS. No, it was always like the eight way, frames. And so yeah. you'd had to, you had to then put it in a timeline, which getting that software for that was always a challenge yeah. and then speed it up like 200%. And it would, some of it would move very really quickly. And then one that wasn't eight frames, but was instead 12 would, would just hold for a second and maybe you go back through and like chop some of those out, but it was just a disaster. And now that kids have procreate and all these things that make it so fast and so simple. I then kind of miss the old school, like single cell for sure. Handmade versions. And that, I think that's why I do a lot of different stuff too, is because like I, if things start to get too polished, I don't like them. Same. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to have like, I, one of the reasons why I like stop motion so much um, and hand-drawn animation so much is you can kind of see the process. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's magical. And there's this sort of, you get drawn into it, hopefully enough so that you kind of forget about that. But like the things that really made me fall, fall in love with animation is when you can kind of see part of the process so that you knew it was like a piece of art that was moving. And, yeah and doing its thing but not to the point where you're totally taken out of it like there's a difference between like a bad special effect and a distinct style because yeah. when they slam head to head you're like that looks terrible but when it's like if like godzilla movies look cool to me because the buildings look as fake as godzilla does <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think of someone doing like a diorama type thing, you know, where maybe they have a little box and they're moving stuff in and out. There's a thin line there where if, you know, they're never going to make that too crisp. So that's a good start to, oh, there's some cotton balls moving in like clouds. And then, oh, the sea is moving this way. But when you can see a ton of different lights and shadows where they didn't even bother to stand in the same place when they took the photo or whatever it was, that it starts to, and maybe you see a finger or a hand in one of the frames or clearly something where you're like, yeah, this is just sloppy. There are all these little things you can see where even if it's poorly cut out construction paper, if it's moved in a certain way with like a, a discipline to the aesthetic or, or some version of like fidelity to consistency, some of these great combinations of words like this, you can, you can feel that. And you're like, oh, they didn't have a lot to work with, but they really pulled off exactly what they set out to do. Even if it's just a crumpled piece of paper moving around and the way the shadows look, you could tell if someone was really skilled just rolling around a crumpled piece of paper yeah. versus someone that was like, oh, I just want to do some stop motion frames. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that I'm kind of like the latter. I disagree. And then I have like a sprinkle of like, craftsmanship like on top of that you know strongly but, disagree because um, i you know in big nothingness which so all the junk show stuff and and always with the i don't know the at least the, the line that you would give me is oh, i need to practice this and i always felt like yeah that's a nice thing to say when in reality you know you were either just doing me a favor and or want you know want to be a part of the show which is cool but for me the animators it was always kind of a hopefully this is a short enough period, six sec or 16 seconds. So it's just enough to have to work at 
but not enough that it's going to be stressful. And if you have a job that is, you've lost a little bit of the creativity, this is a nice little escape to just, oh, for 16 seconds, I can do or make whatever I want. And overwhelmingly, it felt like that's what animators liked about it. And you were always more kind of, oh, cool, I can work at a new skill. I can work at a new style. I can practice this. So then we get to big nothingness, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to tackle it in clay. And you'd send me photos of your setup and things. It, it felt to me like, well, this is exactly what a studio would do. Like one time I was doing a production job, and I went to a, a stop motion place. It's this kind of eccentric man and woman, both probably in their 50s. And they're just lazily. I mean, I can't really describe enough how they just sauntered around this place and examined things, and they set them down. And there was a period where McDonald's was doing all these stop-motion commercials. They were making them. Just these two people. It wasn't like a whole team of people and someone with the bullhorn going, bring in this. It was these two people rolling things up and, here, stretch that cotton this way. There you go. Just so mellow. And your setup, to me, was virtually exactly what they had. But because you didn't have the giant lights and the storage space and they could walk through maybe 10,000 feet of commercial space and grab any prop or item they needed. Yeah. Whereas like, I'm in the corner of my room over here doing it. But to me, you, you had it set up and then you had a system in place where you could do exactly what you wanted. So I, I think you're, you're way more technical than you're giving yourself credit for. Maybe it's all just a, uh, a result of requirements, either space or time. Um, I haven't done a lot of professional, like in like a uh, work in a pipeline up till when I was at uh, Stupid Buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was actually more VFX and compositing. I wasn't actually doing the animating or anything like that. Yeah. So I think most of it's just sort of been a process of, uh, it's just necessity has sort of determined how the the end product um looked i guess and and how i did it yeah i you know i learned stuff in in animation school that totally made the whole process like if i had tried to set out to do some of the things that i did for you like big nothingness or or any of the other stop motion like lip sync or anything like that it would have taken me so much longer to get to the place where I'm at right now because I got all these like technical skills um and just or just knowing how to like uh do an x sheet with like animation direction and try and hit certain marks you've got you know it's take your storyboard then you apply your like you know animation direction to that you've got a certain amount of time in which to get this thing done. And in that way, like, I think animation's cool because you know the structure of the thing. After your storyboard, you're kind of like, this is how it's going to be. It's going to look cooler, but this is the story. These are the beats. These are the movements. And you kind of, you get to just kind of like, one thing I realized when I was like painting in school and then more drawing is that we see these flat 2d surfaces um in art a lot of the times but a painting or a drawing is just as much of a sculpture it's just as much of a layered process as anything else Mm -hmm. um and i 
I feel like animation is just kind of like a moving extension of that, of painting or drawing. Obviously it is, <laughs> it is, but it's in that layered sense and the way that you're kind of putting on a layer and putting on a layer, you start with the idea and then you do the storyboard and then you're doing like, um, you know, you're in traditional, it would have been like pencils and then you're doing all your keys and then you're filling that all in and then you're doing paint, putting that all together. Like it's pretty obvious layered thing but even the stop motion comes together in those kinds of layers and the thing that i think is weird about live action when i've either been a part of it is just it seems so chaotic to me <laughs> it's just like it, it is that like people like yelling with a bullhorn and like everybody like get together and it's just like i think i like animation studios and animating for myself because it's so much more quiet and meditative and um, I can put those layers on without people yelling at me. <laughs> I don't, I don't like that. No, no, I don't think most people, I think most people do not like being yelled at. I would, yeah. get, that's, <laughs> that's the only way I operate. I, yeah, man. I don't know. It's just, I can't get anything done unless somebody's slapping me around. You gotta scream at me. At me. Get me going. You gotta scream at me. First I need my coffee and then a good scream. <laughs> I like the the first time I ever really sat down to animate beyond just, you know, the corner of your a stack of post-it notes or something or your notebook in school and you'd have like we always did me and my it would be a person running and cartwheeling and a lot of times they would fly off the page or bounce back. Then it became bombs dropping and like drawing, you know, smoke and big explosion type things and you're look at this. Uh those are fun and then the concept or the term of motion or moving pictures didn't set into well beyond that. If someone had just very simply said, see each corner of this stack of post-its is a picture. When you move them in succession, now you've animated it, brought it to life. You've, you can control the frame rate. You can go through it really fast and that person's sprinting or you can go kind of slow, but then there's a, the suspension of disbelief dissipates if you don't have enough pictures to flip through because then it's going to be kind of choppy. And I was animated. I, was, I had a stand-up bit and a friend of mine was like, it doesn't work. And I was like, of course it works. And he was like, I don't, I don't see how it could go together. So I started trying to draw just one picture and I realized oh, I, that doesn't work. I need, I need to kind of walk you through the sequence. And then pretty soon I was so bored at that job. Anytime like the phones weren't ringing or whatever I was supposed to be doing wasn't happening. I would draw frame after frame after frame. And I just kind of taught myself in that way. I mean, that, that sounds ridiculous. I didn't teach myself, but I developed a technique that was working for me in that time. I'm, you know, and I go, this is exhausting. And my friend goes, imagine how hard it is for God to animate you every day, which is a kind of a sophomore dumb thought. But I think that's where people get excited about, like you were saying, the layers to everything. So when you first start to learn, like you talked about at Stupid Buddy, compositing, you know, on your end, you're like, I, you could show up to someone and be like, I have a stack of things. And they go, oh, cool. We have a, a machine or we have something where we can photograph those all really quickly, drag them into a timeline, put music under them and turn that into what you have in mind. You go, great, I just drew them, I didn't. So you're like on the outside looking in there. You go, I don't know how these things all come together, but when you do know how to composite them and you do know the software, you're seeing all those layers. And then you're, 
you can see where it starts with, oh, we're making silent films, and then we're making pictures that are black and white, and then in, then we've figured out the pictures, and we've done cool sound effects, and we're doing practical, real effects for them, and then we're animating, but we're doing it in a very single-cell kind of way, and then now getting into CGI, and at some point, the the stuff is all staying so far ahead of basically everybody but when you like you're from Washington I'm from Nevada you watch movies the idea of the credits at the end was just unnecessary as a kid because I don't I know who's in it I don't care yeah but then here living in Los Angeles there's a reason people get together and celebrate best lighting or best sound designer you know that because they know every layer that went into it and they personally probably know some of the people or can appreciate it like oh Man, I'm so glad that project when Peter was part of the compositing team, it's beautiful. Like, look at there's no glitchiness here. There's no um oh, there's a, another term that I've forgotten. But well, I'll look forward to that day. But the, <laughs> I I I can't um I can't think of too many endeavors other than architecture, uh engineering, um maybe I don't know, social programs or anything like that that involve as many people as films do. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of, you know, or like this, like, <laughs> like how many people worked on the Mars Rover versus how many people worked on the last Marvel movie. It was probably like, <laughs> you know, I bet the Marvel movie won, which is <laughs> yeah. saying a lot. Like, yeah, that's it didn't true. cost as much, you know, but um, that was a lot of people. Yeah. And that's it. And it sounds like you could probably approach that from a, a so many different angles as far as like, well, you only have so many people that are the Albert Einstein of the think team that are that are kind of designing or mapping out how to go about it. And that's not necessarily true because you might have a dozen of those people. Whereas, you know, you can take courses and learn compositing or, hey, your whole job is to go through and just color in these little fractal mistakes on 50 frames. It's going to take you a month because you're going to be filling in 4K. That's a lot of pixels. Kind of maybe you have some sort of stylus or something. You just go through and, all right, here are all these little mistakes where we're stitching this stuff together or whatever it is because I don't even know if that's an accurate thing. I just see when you see like (laughs) the Australia team animation and then it'll sometimes say like monster's eye. Like, oh, that whole team, they had to send away to Australia to be like, work on the eye. And then 30 people spent all day for weeks, potentially. Like, yeah, we're getting that eye pretty good. And then, you, but then you watch a, that movie and you're like, whew, that was pretty sweet. Yeah. I think that when I started to get in more individual effects, or it started like to dip a toe into it, it blew me away how much the, how compartmentalized, not compartmentalized, but how broken down the work is. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know that within the animation industry, there's like definitely this person does this, this person does this. And a lot of it has been broken up, I think, um, uh, just by necessity. But then I think the union had a part to play in it too, mm-hmm. where you don't have as many generalists. You've got, you're like, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. But but my, my point is that with, visual effects they're breaking down the thing like you just said the eye um and they're they're bidding like these companies are all bidding on these shots which i think is i was like that sounds like construction 
Yeah. Because that's how you build a building is you have all these subcontractors and and they're bidding on all these parts of the building. And then the, the you know, uh, contractor is putting all these, you know, people with all their specific skills and skill sets to put this whole thing together. Yeah. And I was like, that that's where my dad came from is construction. So it's like, I, I started to see that parallel. I was like, oh, this is just like a giant like conceptual building (laughs) (laughs) like these these movies are just like all these like little teams being like yeah we'll we'll do that shot for five thousand dollars or whatever and yeah they're you know and some of them are better than others and you know that's just of course they're going to lean on their um heavy hitters for some of the fancier stuff but, yeah, but if you and yeah. I started a props company or special effects or whatever it was, yeah, we would have to one prove ourselves, which is either through low level films to get the you know uh, your name built up, but then you got to be out there shaking hands and trying to somehow yeah people don't think of it in those ways that I think from the outside tinsel town and the glitz and the lights it makes sense why they're it's so easily uh, sold to people that it's like child blood drinking pedophile maniacs because the concept that it is an industry or kind of a blue collar environment where there are subcontractors to things and people get up and work really hard very long days to make things this is not what you think of because you only see the award shows on tv and you see the oh they're always partying and wearing gowns and you don't realize that's the very top of the pyramid Everyone yeah. else was getting yeah. up at 5 a.m. and driving way in the hell out in the middle of nowhere and walking over and getting some sort of a bagel or some sort of breakfast thing. And even in Southern California, like seeing their breath and be like, God, where in the hell are we? And then all these camera trucks show up. And by the middle of the day, lights, camera and action are all happening. But it was all those little groups you're talking about. And then the ones that are waiting months down the road of like, well, when you've got all that done, send it to us and we can do this part of it. Yeah. I think uh, that's one of the reasons why I was like, I really enjoyed being, it's one of the things that I did like about being on set mm-hmm. as a PA. Um, um, I, I liked the sort of blue collar aspects. I like, I identified more with like the grips and the electricians than I did with like the directors and the producers and stuff like that's more my background. Mm-hmm. And I like, I don't know. I like being a grunt sometimes and just, working um yeah but there's also a huge part of me that's like not satisfied unless there's something within me coming out like that's like a rusty faucet like a calcified yeah calcified faucet or something like that it just kind of like you can run the water through it but at some point you kind of just gotta like clean it out and that's like the creative process for me is, is like kind of cleaning it out even though um i do I do just like getting paid to just be a grunt. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy a lot, though, because I feel like that's a conversation you and I have had quite a bit. And when you des- decide or attempt to make something that you really like as a hobby, a pursuit, and especially if you get these little tinges of it working out, that you go, oh, cool, like it's now a job. It's no longer this kind of pie in the sky dream or you know whatever you would call it. It's, it's actually becoming a reality. So you have to get up. You have to turn the thing in. You have to, and some people freeze up with that. Whoa, whoa, I've only made this 
these things before out of love, out of, you know, just silliness. I didn't, I didn't have deadlines and I, so everyone processes that part differently. But then if you're making things and you face any level of lack of work or rejection or, you know, you, you try so hard here to present things that could turn into work, make pitches and things and character design, et cetera. And then you're essentially offering it, can I, can I make this? And they go, no, you, we don't like it. And sometimes that can filter all the way back through to that faucet where you're like, it sort of turns it off a little bit. Yeah. Where you're like, yeah. oh man, I, it's, it, the rejection is like gumming up the faucet. Uh, am I yeah. going to be a seven-year-old where I'm just coloring because I love coloring? Because yeah. as you get older, you feel like that's insanity. But then there's this other part of you that's like, but I'll, I'll wither away if I don't do that. It has to come out. What's that? that like nerdy proverb or saying it's like dance like no one's watching (laughs) (laughs) laugh like no one's listening and love like you've never you know had your heart broken or something (laughs) but I think I mean that's sort of like when you're a creative person that it's at least somebody who finds satisfaction in that coming out because I I really don't think that there's like people that aren't creative they just might not have found that thing that they like to do yeah or maybe you know maybe they've got a secret that they keep you know in a closet um and they yeah you know melt crayons into star shapes and that's like their passion that they hide or something i don't know there's some sort of creative thing in in everybody but i think that anybody who has that inclination takes that creativity or that creative idea and it's a big danger i think with anybody is to overly personalize that thing and i and claim it as your own yeah but if if i could identify where the thoughts in my head come from or the sounds that i hear when i'm coming with music or anything like that that'd be cool but i have no idea sometimes like sometimes i'll just wake up And when you have dreams, where did that shit come from? There's (laughs) no, like, I never had that experience. I've never seen that person before in my life. Um, So that to me gives evidence that you don't need to like take as much ownership over these creative ideas. Like they're going to come back. They're going to come from somewhere. Like if you're creative and truly creative, which I think most people are, then it's okay if somebody says that stinks yeah. because you're like, well, I'll find something that doesn't, you know? <laughs> I have a thing you know? now where like if I could go back through old notebooks and things and see, you know, ideas jotted down that I would go, Oh, that became this show. You know, my friend and I wrote a script and then this show superstore came out and, you know, it was relatively similar as far as a premise. And early on I would be like, damn it. I missed my timing or I got, you know, I, I was off or, over time, you just go, oh, sweet. I'm so glad someone made that, saw it through, created, turned that little idea that I thought had some value. You know, it was very different than the show Superstore, I think. But that and Michael Jackson used to wake his producer up and be like, we got to go record it. And they'd be like, it's 4 a.m. And he'd go, if I don't do it right now, God's going to give this idea to Prince. And, <laughs> <laughs> and i think yeah. the transference of when it do, I, people when i first started doing stand-up would a common question was where do your ideas come from and i would always say it's similar to like if you're just driving and out of nowhere you just know like 
oh, I, I got to call Chris. And then you try to trace back, like, where did that come from? You just knew yeah. it. It's it's concrete. It absolutely, yes, I do need to call that person. But what were all the thoughts that led up to it? It doesn't really matter. And you couldn't really retrace them to a an origin spot. You might get the last two or three beats of it. Oh, right, I was thinking of this, and that reminded me of this, and then this store, and we used to, oh, that's why. But the very beginning of it, that's the fun part is when your brain is just kind of wandering around and then it yeah. stumbles into something. But I think you're right that some people go, huh? And then they never call Chris. They never paint their thing. They never, I got, uh, kind of I, for a period during the pandemic, we wanted to like make candles. So I was looking on Craigslist and one of the ads and I did make some, and I had that thing that some people do when they make a creative thing. All right. I did a watercolor painting. Never again. Made some candles and was like, I'm good. But this lady had this ad that was like, I got really into candles during the pandemic. I gave them to everyone I know, way too many. And now I hate it. And I never want to make candles again. (laughs) And I think that's a lot of people, like that spectrum of, I'm never going to try it. I had the idea I'm not going to call Chris and or I got to make candles. Then I got to make this other thing. Then I got to paint. And then I got to do stop motion, but then also 2D. And then I want to try to do oil on glass type animation. Just always something new. Yeah. I, I'm i just going to take a a wild guess at what happened with this lady who made too many candles. <laughs> I bet she started telling all her friends and posting online that she was making candles and they were cute and cool and people loved them. Yeah. And she got overwhelmed with obligation and was yeah. like, okay, this isn't fun because now it's, there's an obligation. Yeah. And that's where, like, I did that. That's just, my, that's a theory I have about this woman and her candles. <laughs> I like <laughs> that. I think How did she water. get turned off the candles? Cause it sounds really fun and meditative to me. Just keep pouring candles, like whatever they're, they are. Yeah. And to be completely turned off by it had to be another aspect of it because that's always what it is for me. So obviously I'm projecting, but I'm just, I'm guessing that that might be something that happened. But I'm trying to think like, what is a style of drawing or painting or animation that you no longer do? It was probably just that. And you're like, oh, you know what? I, I don't draw in charcoal anymore. I used to do pastels on like black paper. I don't do it anymore. I, I didn't have the same thing as her, like never again. Yeah. But there's just diminishing returns at some point, you know, where you're yeah. like, some people can, I don't know if you ever saw this on Venice beach. There was the guy that would go make the same exact sand sculpture every day. This dragon kind of mermaid thing every day, the exact yeah. same. And I think he was speaking to this exact thing. I think he was just saying candles never get old for me. And this is an experiment to see, like, when's that breaking point? Will I make something new? Will I never touch sand again? So you could, as an experiment, you could walk by it every day and go, well, today's not the day. He still loves it. Yeah, which is beautiful. To me, that's, you know, that's like, I, you know, it kind of reminds me just because of sand, but the mandalas and stuff that they make, and, and I think it's Tibet, mm-hmm. and they make, it's all a very specific representation. They might get a little creative with it, I think, but they, they make the same thing, and then it's, the process is make it, wipe it away, make it, wipe it away. And that is yeah. the art that, or that is the sort of expression. So it's not, it's not about, um, constantly like trying to come up with a new 
means of expressing the thing that's in us. It's about reiterating that thing until it's understood by the person who's doing it. Some yeah. people find satisfaction in that. I'm just a weirdo from the turn of the century with bad ADD, so I can't. I could never do anything like that. <laughs> it's funny. That's exactly I what I was going to present as sort of a thought exercise in that the people that do, they sit there cross-legged with like a piece of straw. And as I understand it, there's kind of a groove in the top and it's, so the grains of sand fill this groove and then you individually like push them down. So you're, it would be like going in and putting one pixel in place and then you move the straw over a little bit. And now I'm going to put a piece of turquoise sand there. And then this darker bit over here and one after another and people with an un calm mind might say the thought of sitting there doing that for any part of my life makes me want to just sprint just sprint into the distance to not be doing that just to be doing anything other than that to sit in one place and do something so meaningless and they're probably saying that's life life is really appreciating each moment that you have and focusing on a single task and trying to clear your mind and those two things seem to kind of yin and yang a little bit. Maybe the people that need that the most could never do it. And the people that are the most suited to it probably don't need to be doing that. They'd probably find yeah, that same yeah. patience or calmness. They'd probably be pretty good at running a, a corporation, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can put one grain of sand down at a time. Why not run the world? Yeah. I mean, right. that's a very reasonable uh, <laughs> or a jump in logic. Yeah, they I, really could do anything. I, I wonder if that same person who like you, you know, the, this hypothetical person who could never fathom doing that or just like immediately the reaction would be like, no, I'm never, that's awful. That sounds like torture. Yeah. If they were able to remove all the like influences from their life and then just all of a sudden, like that was their sole task. Yeah. With no, with no, like not remove their memory or anything, but just like, listen, you don't have to pay any bills anymore. You don't have to worry about car payments. You don't, we'll bring you all the food you want whenever you want. All you have to do is make this sand sculpture and all your needs will be taken care of for you. Yeah. I, it sounds like a pretty tempting offer. I don't know how you get into that. I don't, <laughs> I kind of went down the wrong path for that. I think I'm kind of <laughs> s- stuck in my, this, my this thinking zone. though is that you would end up missing. I think we, in some strange ways keep ourselves in the lives that we're in even if you know someone that just does nothing but complain about it i hate my job i hate this i hate traffic i hate all the i hate the people i hang out with the food i eat you know not that we know any anyone that pronounced but just say hypothetically that person would get that sweet uh tibetan sand design job and i would guess within 30 minutes we'd go you know what i miss is the feeling of having a stressful week and coming home and ordering in some takeout and sitting there with either a friend or a loved one or by myself or a pet or whatever it is and just yeah. decompressing and watching crappy TV. Yeah. And you and I would say, but you did that for weeks on end, complaining mercilessly about every part of it. I yeah. know, as it turns out, I miss it. I don't want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, upon second thought, <laughs> my life was kind of cool. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. But yeah. also, I like complaining. That's the part yeah. that I miss. I yeah, like- yeah. 
yeah sometimes i feel that way about myself i'm gonna be like like i'll you know amber will you know be like kind of chastise me be for for being negative and it's just like i want to i want to be a butthead for a minute you know <laughs> doesn't happen a lot she's actually not very far away so i have to be careful yeah, don't get your ears but, boxed you know. over there <laughs> my grandpa would always complain about commercials and i would just go after him like what about that one what would have made it better what didn't you like and one day he finally just stopped and was like i'm a complainer i just <laughs> <laughs> i just like i just love that or like yeah sometimes you just need that you know yeah. who, who wrote this piece of crap that's fine but you got to know what you like and not pretend that, uh, oh, I'd be much happier doing sand designs. No, you wouldn't. I had, I had this thought that kind of ties into another thing about, about uh, I don't know, it tied into something. So maybe <laughs> I'll give it a whirl and see if it fits. But it was a thought that came to me and it was really odd. Oh, it was how we were thinking of like where thoughts come from. Like, how did you call, end up thinking to call Chris? Mm-hmm. And I had this thought, it's like, well, I don't really like kale very much, but if somebody were to ask me why I don't like kale, and I tried to list the reasons, I don't actually know if they would be accurate. I just don't like kale. (laughs) (laughs) Like the biggest explanation I can, like the most accurate is like, I put it in my mouth and my brain goes, meh, like that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a that fine explanation like, do you need more I, I than could, that or people there with like no. a notepad like uh uh-huh, and go on there's gotta be somebody who's like but tell me more why don't you like kale and <laughs> I, I guess for me it was just like where did that idea come why does that so i could list all the things that break down why i don't like something or why you do love something but is that really why you like it or you love it or is it just actually something that just clicks and you yeah feel something for somebody or something and then you fill in the gaps of how you got there because that's necessary to make that connection oh i like it i have a follow-up thought on that but let's take a little break for a moment and then we'll pick it up okay all right breaks (laughs) (laughs) isn't he great wonderful human being pleasant delightful uh come back for part two and hear more of our conversation. Uh, And thanks for supporting the show. If you do, via Patreon, the show is brought to you ad-free because of contributions from listeners just like you. You can find links to it at davidhunsberger.com or Patreon slash Space Cave. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who uh, rates, reviews, subscribes, whatever, to in any way help the show. If you tell a friend, anything like that, it all helps the show. Thanks to Dan uh, thanks to Rob Crow for the theme song. And speaking of songs, let's get out of here with one by Peter's brother, or a band he was in, uh, called Love is Laughter. Uh, Sam Jane, Peter's brother, the late, great Sam Jane, frontman for Love is Laughter, Link. Uh, one of those people that when you read about and hear about, you learn how instrumental and um, impactful what they contributed was in a lot of like this conversation, um, it very rarely has to do with fame or popularity at the moment, things like that. A lot of times uh, people uh, like Gene Hospod is a big fan of the late Scott Walker, who died a couple years ago, 
And, you know, a lot of people might not know who that is. And yet people like Tom York, who are very highly respected musicians, would cite him as an influence. And it feels like uh, Sam Jane had sort of the same impact. And Peter mentioned, we get into this more in part two, and um, so not to get too into that, but he, he mentioned kind of their their popular era and Coconut Flakes. And this is off the same album, Holy. Um but then how later when he was kind of set free, very similar to what Scott Walker did, have a little bit of kind of pop, you know, success and then go, well, that's not really what I want to be doing. And even if it's the detriment to your career, uh, sometimes you got to just do what makes sense to you, what inspires you, what feels artistic. And so we'll, we'll play one of those songs uh, in part two. But for now, this is from the, the earlier uh, Holy album that was a little bit more of a commercial success and I still think is very good. So it's not to say that just by being somewhat successful or popular that it diminishes something being good. That's certainly not the case. Anyway, this is a song by Sam Jane and Love is Laughter. It's called Don't Worry. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Camp. Every sand dollar 